Hello and welcome to Halfway History. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kylie. And this is a show where we talk about the upcoming week, but a long time ago. And sometimes not so long ago. How long ago were we talking this time, Kylie? How do the 1300s sound? They sound pretty long ago. That sounds like a real long ago. Yeah, I would classify this one as pretty long ago. <laughs> well, let's get right to it. All right. So this week we are taking a trip in the Way Way Back Machine to October 13th of 1307. On this day, King Philip IV of France had Grand Master Jacques de Molay and several members of the Knights Templar arrested and charged with idolatry and corruption. Idolatry. Yeah, I've been waiting to cover the Knights Templar for forever, so I'm super excited to get to do it now. <laughs> All right, I can't wait to find out what these uh, super religious knights did to uh, have a have a new idol. Mm, yeah. So before we can talk about the actual event and what happened after, we need to find out more about where the Knights Templar came from. So the Knights Templar, officially known as the Poor Fellows, Soldiers of Christ, and of the Temple of Solomon or the Order of Solomon's Temple, were sometimes simply called Templars or Knights Templars, which is what I'm going with because it's a lot less of a mouthful. It's also what most people know them by. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were a Catholic military order and were one of the most wealthy and popular of the Western Christian military orders of the time. For the formation of the Knights Templar, we have to head on over to Jerusalem during the First Crusade, after the capture of Jerusalem from the Fatimid Caliphate in 1099 AD, many Christians started making pilgrimages to various sacred sites in the Holy Land. And although the city of Jerusalem was relatively secure under Christian control, the rest of the outer area was not. So bandits and marauding highwaymen preyed upon the pilgrims who were routinely slaughtered, sometimes by the hundreds, as they attempted to make the journey from the coastline at Jaffa through to the interior of the Holy Land. So it was a pretty dangerous journey, and it was com compounded by the return of most crusaders to their homelands. So like after the city was won, all of the crusaders were like, okay, job's done, let's go back. So there wasn't anyone really there to guard the pilgrims either. In 1119, a French knight by the name of Hugh de Payne approached King Baldwin II of Jerusalem, who was the Patriarch of Jerusalem, uh, both were members of the First Crusade, um, who assumed these titles after, so the King of Jerusalem was actually like a white European dude. Mm -hmm, Shocking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but he had a proposition to create a monastic order for the protection of the pilgrims. King Baldwin... And the Patriarch agreed to the request, probably at the Council of Nablus in January of 1120. And the King granted the Templars a headquarter in the wing of the Royal Palace at the Temple of the Mount in the captured al Ask Mosque. This location was likely chosen as the Royal Palace because it was thought to be above what was believed to be the ruins of the Temple of Solomon, which was once, according to the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, home to the Israelite central artifact, the Ark of the Covenant. The Crusaders therefore returned to the Al-Ask Mosque as Solomon's Temple, and from this location the New Order took the name of the Poor Knights of Christ and the Temple of Solomon, or the Templar Knights. As the name implies, the original Templars, only about nine knights, so there were only about nine of them, had few financial resources and relied on donations to survive. Their emblem was of two knights riding on a single horse, emphasizing the Order's poverty, However, the situation didn't last long. They had a powerful advocate in St. Bernard of Clairvaux, a leading church figure. Um, he was a French ab abbot. And a cool dog breed. 
and a cool dog breed, yes. <laughs> um, but he was primarily responsible for the founding of the Caesarian Order of Monks and was a nephew of André de Montbard, one of the Templars' founding knights. So he had, you know, familial connections. So Bernard put his weight behind them and wrote persuasively on their behalf in a letter titled In Praise of the New Knighthood in 1129 at the Council of Troy. And he led a group of leading churchmen to officially approve and endorse the order on behalf of the church. So with this formal blessing, the Templars became a favored charity throughout Christendom. They received money, land, businesses, and noble-born sons from families were super eager to help in the fight to keep the Holy Land safe. At the Council of Pisa in 1135, Pope Innocent II even initiated the first papal monetary donation to the order. Another major benefit came in 1139 when Innocent II's papal bull Omne Datum Optimum exempted the order from obedience to local laws. So this ruling meant that the Templars could pass freely through all borders, were not required to pay any taxes, and were exempt from all authority except for that of the Pope. What a gig! My next question is, what could possibly go wrong? Exempting white men with swords and an unshakable belief that they're right from every authority except someone sitting in Italy. Uh. (laughs) So the Knights did have their own code of conduct, known to modern historians as the Latin Rule. It was devised by Bernard de Clairvaux and Hugh de Payne. Um, Its 72 clauses laid down the details of the Knights' way of life, including the types of garments they could wear and how many horses they could have. Knights were to take their meals in silence, eat meat no more than three times a week, and not have physical contact of any kind with women, even members of their own family, so like mothers and sisters, no touchy. This is what real chivalry sounds like, people who don't understand. (laughs) So as the order grew, more guidelines were added, and the original list of 72 clauses was expanded to several hundred in its final form. Unsurprisingly, the order grew rapidly. No precise number exists, but but it's estimated that at the order's peak, there were between 15,000 and 20,000 Templars. Okay, that's a lot. That, yep. Now it actually sounds like the Pope's army, not <laughs> nine guys, uh, you know, being bandits along with bandits, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> when you first said that, I was like, wait, nine people decided it was their their uh, prerogative to protect the entirety of a country from highway bandits? This doesn't sound very feasible. But <laughs> with 20,000 people, that sounds a lot more feasible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, however, on that note, only about a tenth of them were actually knights. So like a tenth of 20,000. Couldn't stay away from the women, could they? <laughs> uh, we'll get into it. Um, it. Not the women, but... So the Templars were often the advanced shock troops in key battles of the Crusades, so like the later Crusades, um, as they were heavily armored and they had war horses. um, So they were sent out to charge at the enemy ahead of the main army in an attempt to break the opposition lines. One of their most famous victories was in 1177 during the Battle of Montgissard, where 500 Templar knights helped several thousand infantry to defeat Saladin's army of more than 26,000 soldiers. So despite the order's origins and protection, very few of its members were actually combatants. The others acted in support positions to assist the knights and to manage the financial infrastructure of the order. So on that note, did you know that the Knights Templar ran a very early form of banking? Really? Yes. So while its members were sworn to individual property, the order was given control of wealth beyond direct donations. So like the stuff that they raided? Um... 
No, stuff that was like donated to them by people back in Europe. Oh, okay. Yeah. So a nobleman who is interested in participating in the Crusades might place all of his assets under Templar management while he was away. Having accumulated significant wealth this way, in 1150, the order began generating letters of credit for pilgrims who were journeying to the Holy Land. So pilgrims deposited their valuables with a local Templar preceptory before embarking. They received a document indicating the value of their deposit and then used that document upon arrival in the Holy Land to receive their funds in an amount of treasure of equal value. So not just banks, but like government bonds. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So this innovative arrangement was essentially an early form of banking and may have been the first formal system to support the use of checks. Uh, This system improved the safety of pilgrims by making them less attractive targets for thieves and contributed to the Templar coffers. So win-win, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, actually, it was pretty pretty good. We've seen how well banks make out these days. If they started <laughs> one that long ago, my God, they'd be the richest. But I mean, like, in terms of protecting the pilgrims from being raided, if they didn't have anything of value on that and people, like, on them and people knew that, they weren't going to get attacked. So it, it was beneficial for them. All right. So profiting greatly from their financial network, the Templars were able to acquire large tracts of land, both in Europe and the Middle East. They bought and managed farms and vineyards. They built massive stone cathedrals and castles. They were involved in manufacturing, import and export. They had their own fleet of ships. And at one point, they even owned the entire island of Cyprus. That's quite a bit. Yep. They were essentially the world's first multinational corporation. <laughs> oh, no, I hate it. <laughs> However, as every empire rises, it likewise must fall. And the Knights Templar burned bright and swift. Oh, really? Yep. I kind of thought that they were around for a while. So before we talk about the fall of the Knights Templar, I quickly want to look at the internal structure and the culture within the order. So they had a strong chain of authority headed by the Grand Master, who was appointed for life and oversaw both the order's military efforts in the East and their financial holdings in the West. The Grand Master exercised his authority via the Visitors General of the Order, who were knights specifically appointed by the Grand Master and the Covenant of Jerusalem to visit the different provinces, correct malpractices, introduce new regulations, and resolve important disputes. The Visitor General had the power to remove knights from office and to suspend the master of a province concerned. Um, So, like, if there was trouble, they could be like, nah, you're out. Hmm. So each country with a major Templar presence, uh, which were France, Poitou, Anjou, Jerusalem, England, Spain for a little bit, Portugal, Italy, Tripoli, Antioch, Hungary, and Croatia— had a master of the Order of the Templars in that region. There were two of those that do not exist anymore. What? Where are they now? Do you know? Um, I don't know off the top of my head where exactly they are. I know Poitou and Anjou are all now part of France. Oh, okay. Those were the two that don't oh, okay. exist anymore. Yes, those are... Oh, well, those I guess are... Antioch doesn't either, but I'm aware of Antioch. Yeah, those, those were, like, at the time, independent from, like, France as a country, but right. have since been congealed. <laughs> That's not the right word, but whatever. So within the ranks of the Templars, there was a threefold division. The noble knights, the non-noble servants, and the chaplains. So the Templars did, didn't perform knighting ceremonies, so any knight wishing to become a knight Templar had to already be a knight. The knights were the most visible branch of the order, wearing a white surcoat with a red cross and a white mantle that also had that red cross to symbolize their purity and chastity. They can't mm. wear the red cross. Only the red cross can wear a red cross. That's a uh, war crimes violation. So there is actually a slight connection. 
which there I, is a connection. I think to the two. I think okay. I I think I actually talk about that in a different in an episode I've already written the notes for, but I haven't recorded yet. So we're gonna have a call back later. <laughs> okay. Did you do an episode on the Red Cross? Is that what it is? You're gonna find out. Uh, <laughs> so spoilers. <laughs> Lock your ears, listeners. <laughs> so beneath the knives in the order and drawn from non-noble families were the sergeants. They brought vital skills and trades from blacksmithing to building, including administration of many of the order's European properties. Several of the order's most senior positions were reserved for sergeants, including the post of the commander of the vault of the Acre, who was the de facto admiral of the Templar fleet. The sergeants wore a black tunic with a red cross on the front and a black or brown mantle. From 1139, chaplains constituted a third Templar class and were ordained priests who cared for the Templar's spiritual needs. The white mantle was assigned to the Templars of, at the Council of Troy in 1129, and the cross was most probably added to their robes at the launch of the Second Crusade in 1147. Under the rule, the knights were to wear the white mantle at all times. They were even forbidden from, to eat or drink unless they were wearing it. And although not prescribed by the Templar rule, it later became customary for members of the order to wear long and prominent beards. So you are well on your way, sir. Yay! <laughs> I don't know if I want to join this group. We haven't, <laughs> we haven't gotten to the end of this episode yet, so... Um, we'll see. So the red cross that the Templars wore on their robes was a symbol of martyrdom, and to die in combat was considered a great honor that assured them a place in heaven. There was a cardinal rule that the warriors of the order should never surrender unless the Templar flag had fallen, and even then they were first to try to regroup with another of the Christian orders, like that of the Hospitaliers. That's one I've never heard of. Yep, and I don't go into detail about that, because I don't have to say it again. (laughs) Um. Only after all flags had fallen were they allowed to leave the battlefield. So this uncompromising principle, along with their reputation for courage, excellent training, and heavy armament, meant that the Templars were one of the most feared combat forces in medieval times. Also sounds very Nordic. Mm Mm-hmm. And now for the fall. In the mid-12th century, the tide began to turn in the Crusades. The Islamic world had become more united under the effective leaders like Saladin, and dissension arose among the Christian factions in and concerning the Holy Land, and the Knights Templar were frequently at odds with two other Christian military orders, the Knights Hospitalier and the Teutonic Knights. Additionally, decades of internal feuding had weakened Christian positions, both politically and militarily. In 1187, Jerusalem was recaptured by Muslim forces under Saladin. The Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II reclaimed the city for Christians in the Sixth Crusade of 1229 without Templar aid, but held it for little more than a decade. In 1244, the city was again captured by the Ayyubid dynasty, and the city did not return to Western control until 1917, when during World War I, the British captured it from the Ottoman Empire. Pretty good run there. Yeah, right? So when Jerusalem was recaptured, the Templars were forced to move their headquarters to other cities in the north, such as the seaport of Acre, which they held until 1291, and their other mainland holdings were lost pretty soon after that. Their headquarters were then moved to Limassol on the island of Cyprus, and they attempted to maintain a garrison on the tiny Arward Island just off the coast of Tortosa, one of their former strongholds. In 1300, there was some attempt to engage in a coordinated military effort with the Mongols via a joint invasion from Arwad. However, in 1302 War, 1303, the Templars lost the island to the Egyptian Maluk Sultanate in the Siege of Arwad. 
So with the island gone, the Crusaders had lost their last foothold in the Holy Land. Mm. So without need for the Templars' mission anymore, support for the organization began to dwindle. The situation was complex, however, since during the 200 years of their existence, the Templars had become a part of daily life throughout Christendom. They had a strong presence at the local level, with Templar houses scattered throughout Europe and the Near East. Likewise, they still managed many businesses, and many Europeans had daily contact with the Templar network, such as working at a Templar farm or vineyard or using the order as a bank in which to store their personal valuables. The order was still not subject to local government either, making it everywhere a state within a state, essentially. It had a standing army, though it no longer had a well-defined mission, and it could pass freely through all borders still. This situation heightened tensions with some European nobility, especially as the Templars were indicating an interest in founding their own monastic state, which the Teutonic Knights had done in Prussia and the Knights Hospitalier were doing in Rhodes. So remember how I asked what could go wrong? Oh, here we are. What could go wrong, Kylie? This, this, this what I'm about to say is, gonna, is what's going to go wrong. I'm ready. <laughs> so what was Europe to do about yet another military faction hoping to establish their own state? Well, if you'll think back to the top of the episode, we already know. In 1305, the new Pope Clement V, based in Avignon, France, sent letters to both the Templar Grandmaster Jacques de Molay and the Hospitalier Master Grandmaster Folk de Villarette, who discussed the possibility of merging the two orders, presumably to prevent a third independent state from occurring. Sounds like something else popes did fairly recently yeah. that we've talked about. Womp. Uh, but neither had any interest in this idea. Nevertheless, he persisted. <laughs> in 1306, he invited both grandmasters to France to discuss the matter. De Molay arrived first in early 1307, but de Villarette was delayed for several months. So while they waited, de Molay and Clement discussed the criminal charges that had been made two years earlier by an ousted Templar and were being discussed by King Philip IV of France and his ministers. It was generally agreed that the charges were false, but Clement sent the king a written request for assistance in the investigation. According to some historians, King Philip, who was already deeply in debt to the Templars from his war against England, saw this as the perfect opportunity. He began pressuring the church to take action against the order as a way of freeing himself from these debts. At dawn on Friday, October 13, 1307, King Philip ordered de Molay and scores of other French Templars to be simultaneously arrested. The arrest warrant started with the words, Dieu n'est pas content, nous avons d'ennemis de la foi de la royaume. So God is not pleased, we have enemies in the faith of the kingdom. Being a member of a religious order or just by virtue of living in medieval Europe meant being labeled as an enemy of the faith was a big deal. Claims were made that during Templar ad admission ceremonies, recruits were forced to spit on the cross, deny Christ, and engage in indecent kissing. Uh, brethren were also accused of worshiping idols, and the order was said to have encouraged homosexual practices. So you mean like the church? Uh huh. <laughs> Bingo. Uh huh. In secret. <laughs> Do these accusations remind you of anything else that happens oh, in the next couple of yep. centuries? Uh, there we go. <laughs> Again, ahead of the curve. Also, witch trials, though. So that's true. Um, that's very. I, I didn't even think about witch trials. Mm -hmm. Witch trials. I would also accept anti-Semitism and accusations of heresy as other correct answers to that question. I mean, I think the <laughs> anti-Semitism and just anti uh, any other religion is kind of inherently baked in to the Crusades and everyone who participated. Just in perpetuity. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, despite having very little evidence, the allegations against the Templars were highly publicized. 
However, they were also charged with more concrete allegations like financial corruption, fraud, and secrecy. Well, I mean, (laughs) probably. (laughs) So the charges of secrecy came mainly from the initiation ceremony, a solemn event, which outsiders were discouraged from attending. Um, If this was a charge now, anyone in any sort of fraternity or like Masonic group would be in so much trouble. Us. Yeah. All Kylie of- on multiple levels. Kylie on multiple levels. You won just one. <laughs> that um, you know of. Oh. Oh. Secrets. Oh, secrets. So many of the accused confessed to their charges under torture, although they denied being tortured in their written confessions because torture. Um, and their confessions caused a scandal in Paris. There were also suspicions that they worshipped either a figure known as Baphomet or a mummified severed head they recovered amongst other artifacts at their original headquarters on the Temple Mount that many scholars theorize might have been that of John the Baptist. Oh, I was about to say, what cool name did they give that one? No, nope, uh, just just John the Baptist. <laughs> yeah, I was like, this is this would be really cool to like write into uh, a campaign for mm. our other show, mm-hmm. just like people worshiping a severed head, and then it's like, oh, it's just a guy. Well. Do you recognize the name John the Baptist? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was yeah. just making sure. All right. But like right. the other one was Baphomet. Yeah, like... I know. <laughs> That's a big leap from Baphomet to John the Baptist. So. Right. <laughs> um, caving under the pressure of King Philip, Pope Clement issued the papal bull Pastoralis. I can never hear papal bull <laughs> without just thinking about the Wall Street bull with a Pope hat. That's all I ever <laughs> think about. <laughs> Well, this papal bull with a po- with a pope hat issued the Pastoralis Preeminente on November twenty second, thirteen o seven, which instructed all Christian monarchs in Europe to arrest all Templars and seize their assets. He called for papal hearings to determine the Templars' guilt or innocence. And once freed of the Inquisitor's torture, many Templars recanted their forced confessions. Shocking. Some had sufficient legal experience to defend themselves in the trials, but in 1310, having appointed the Archbishop of Sens, Philippe de Margini, to lead the investigation, Philip blocked any attempt at defense, using the previously forced confessions to have dozens of Templars burned at the stake in Paris. Ah, uh, there's the witch. Yeah. There's the witch trials. Witch? I'm not a witch. I'm your wife. Mm. <laughs> with Philip threatening military action unless the Pope complied with his wishes, Pope Clement finally agreed to disband the order, citing the public scandal that had been generated by the confessions. At the Council of Vienne in 1312, he issued a series of papal bulls, including Vox in Excelso, which officially dissolved the order, and Ad Providum, which turned over most Templar assets to the Hospitaliers. I think we can all see who their favorite child was. As for the leaders of the order, the elderly Grand Master Jacques de Molay, who had confessed under torture, swiftly retracted his confession, as did Geoffrey de Charnay, who was the preceptor of Normandy. Both men were declared guilty of being relapsed heretics, and they were sentenced to burn alive at the stake in Paris on March 18, 1314. De Molay reportedly remained defiant to the end, asking to be tied in such a way that he could face the Notre Dame Cathedral and hold his hands together in prayer. According to legend, he called out from the flames that both Pope Clement and King Philip would soon meet him before God. His actual words were recorded on parchment as follows. Dieu sait que la tour est la pêche, alors bientôt arrivé malheur à ceux qui nous ont condamnés à mort. So God knows who is wrong and has sinned. Soon a calamity will occur to those who have condemned us to death. So Pope Clement died only a month later. Oh, wow. 
good, good job, <laughs> guy burned at the stake. You did it. Unfortunately, uh-huh, uh-huh, that uh-huh. makes it feel like you uh, maybe should have been burned at the stake, according to them. No, oh, well, um, King Philip died while hunting before the end of the year. So ah, both of them. You got both of them. Mm-hmm. This, so, this man was a witch. So either a prophecy or a curse. I mean, they were both pretty old, so it comes as no surprise. But we're going to go with the witch. <laughs> so the remaining Templars around Europe were either arrested and tried under the papal investigation, with virtually none being convicted, or they were absorbed into other Catholic military orders, or they were pensioned off and allowed to live out their days peacefully. That would be my preference. I hate that there is a common word that you've said a few times now, which is uh, Catholic military order. <laughs> it just feels bad because it never really went away. Well, <clears throat> so by papal decree, the property of the Templars was transferred to the Knights Hospitalier, except in the kingdoms of Castile, Aragon, and Portugal. The Portuguese king, Dennis I, refused to pursue and persecute the former knights, as had occurred in all other sovereign states under the influence of the Catholic Church. Under his protection, the Templar organization simply changed their name from Knights Templar to the reconstituted Order of Christ. Um, A little bit of a mouthful. uh And also a parallel Supreme Order of the Christ of the Holy See. Again, a mouthful, Mm -hmm. but at least that one sounds a little bit more uh, prestigious. Mm Mm-hmm. After the Crusades and before their purge, the Knights Templar funded a large number of building projects around Europe and the Holy Land, many of which are still standing. Many sites also maintain the name Temple because of the centuries-old association with the Templars. For example, some of the Templar lands in London were later rented to lawyers, which led to the names of the Temple Bar Gateway from Westminster into London and the Temple Underground Station. Two of the four inns of court, which may call members to act as barristers, are the Inner Temple and the Middle Temple. And the entire area is known as Temple London. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. The inns of court are professional associations, and all barristers in Britain must belong to one. They have supervisory and disciplinary functions over their members. Think kind of like state bars in in the U.S. Yeah. Distinct architectural elements of Templar buildings include the use of the image of two knights on a single horse, representing the knight's poverty, and round buildings designed to resemble the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. So the story of the persecution and sudden dissolution of the secretive yet powerful medieval Templars has drawn many other groups to use alleged connections with them as a way of enhancing their own image and mystery as well as plenty of conspiracy theories. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Apart from the Order of Christ, there is no clear historical connection between the Knights Templar and any other modern organization, the, early of which, the earliest of which emerged publicly in the 18th century. Today, the grand encampment of the Knights Templar has its roots in Freemasonry and very emphatically denies any proof of a direct connection to the original Knights Templar. Uh, The Order of Christ in Portugal, that absorbed many of the Knights Templar after it was disbanded, considered themselves the successors of the former Knights Templar. King Dennis I negotiated with Clement's successor, John XXII, for recognition of the new order and its right to inherit Templar assets and property. This was granted on March 14, 1319, via a papal bull. There is one fun theory that Freemasonry has direct descent from the historical Knights Templar through its final 14th century members who were thought to have taken refuge in Scotland and helped Robert the Bruce in his victory at Bannockburn. But it's pretty resoundingly rejected by historians and Masonic authorities. The Knights Templar have long been associated with legends concerning secrets and mysteries handed down to the select from ancient times. 
Rumors circulated even during the times of the Templars themselves. Masonic writers added their own speculations in the 18th century, and further fictional embellishments have been added in popular novels like Ivanhoe, Foucault's Pendulum, and The Da Vinci Code. Modern movies like National Treasure, The Last Templar, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and television series like Nightfall, as well as video games like Broken Sword, Deus Ex Machina, Machina, (laughs) and Assassin's Creed and Dante's Inferno. There have been speculative popular publications surrounding the Order's early occupation of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, as well as speculation about what relics the Templars may have found there, most iconically their association with the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy Grail. More recently, and in real life, in September 2001, Barbara Frail discovered a record in the Vatican secret archives. Apparently, it had been filed in the wrong place in 1628. This document, known as the Chinon Parchment, dated August 17th through 20th of 1308, was a record of the trial of the Templars and shows that Clement absolved the Templars of all heresies in 1308 before formally disbanding the order in 1312 as did another Chinon parchment dated August 20th, 1308, which was addressed to Philip IV of France. And this one also mentioned that all Templars that had confessed to heresy were, quote, restored to the sacraments and to the unity of the church. So this other Chinon parchment has been well known to historians, having been published um, by a historian in 1693, and then again by Pierre Dupay in 1751, So the current position of the Roman Catholic Church is that the medieval persecution of the Knights Templar was unjust, that nothing was inherently wrong with the order or its rule, and that Pope Clement was pressed into his actions by the magnitude of the public scandal and by the domineering influence of King Philip IV, who was Clement's relative. And that is the rise and fall of the Knights Templar. Man, I feel uh, conflicted about those last <laughs> sentences because it's like, oh, wow, the like Pope actually went back on some things and like, you know, kind of did right by some people. Mm-hmm. But also it is the Knights Templar and the Crusades and we know how bad those are. So it's like, whatever. But we absolutely need i've just realized how many times we've talked about like popes and stuff like that just throughout (laughs) the not even just the recent episodes but i feel like they come up kind of frequently in a lot of things that we talk about Mm -hmm. and i absolutely now especially because like the knights templar were very heavily associated with lawyers as you kept talking about i want us to have a piece of merch that is the the wall street bull (laughs) with a pope hat serving someone court papers I love it. Oh are my you, gosh, are that's you an amazing. Because we need it. I we, know. Somebody it right please now. draw that for us because that would be so funny. It's <laughs> all I was thinking about. And you like, served a whole bunch of papal bulls and it's like, oh man, just a whole lot of them with summons requests just in their mouth. <laughs> so many bulls in papal hats with a summons request in its mouth. That is absolutely perfect. A lot of holy cows. <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> Anyways. Okay. Um, So if you're new here, stick around after our call to action and we'll um, share some fun facts with everyone. Yeah, we always do a a fun fact from each of us that is also relating to the week that we're talking about. So more little snippets, little tidbits. But first, you must suffer (laughs) through our call to action, and you better listen to it all. We'll know. We'll know, and we'll restrict the fun facts. (laughs) 
okay, good luck doing that. <laughs> Anyways, thank you all for listening. You can find us at halfwitpodcast.com. We have a few different links there for supporting us in different ways, such as merch or our Ko-Fi tip jar. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find all of that at, on our website. Come talk to us at uh, at Halfwit History at, on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the only place we really are. We have a Facebook page, but... I don't think I can't remember the last time we looked at it. Yeah, Facebook <laughs> is dying just as a social media platform in general, especially for podcasting. So mm, yeah. skip over that. Um, and then if you go to if you do go to our Twitter, regardless if you have one, there is a link there, and I think in our show notes as well that lets you submit topics that you would like to hear more about. So yeah. whether it's something that you know a lot about or you wish more people knew about, just uh, fill out that Google form and mm-hmm. send it over to us and Kylie will get it and make it into an episode whenever it's timely and relevant. Yeah, we'll find a date and shove it on in there. <laughs> and thank you to the Fisherman for the use of our theme song, Another Day. You can find a link to their SoundCloud, Kylie is pointing downward, in our show notes. <laughs> It's always downward in our show notes. Down in the show show notes. notes. Yep. All right, so... And now... Is it fun faction? Nope, not fun faction. Fun Fun facts time? (laughs) Which factions are we choosing from? Uh, The factions that listen to the call to action and those who are heretics. Oh, wow, that is an accusation. (laughs) That's right. I told you I'd find out. I see you over there. Oh, no. Skip and back up and all that stuff. (laughs) Don't worry about it. We'll still give you the fun facts. I was kidding. That's me on every other podcast I listen to. Mm-hmm. So on October 13th of 1917, the 10-minute Miracle of the Sun was witnessed by an estimated 70,000 people in Cova da Aria in Fatima, Portugal, also known as The Day the Sun Danced. Definitely going to be an episode at some point. Mm, yeah, that sounds like it would be really interesting to cover. Yeah, I want to know more about how the sun danced. <laughs> also, it's your um, homeland. That's right. Of. <laughs> kind of. I was um, the little forgotten island off of that homeland, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so on October 11th, 1983... The last hand-cranked telephones in the U.S. went out of service as 440 telephone customers in Bryant Pond, Maine, were switched over to direct dial. Ah, we both picked one about our homelands. Yep, yep. Finally catching up to the times in 1983. Wow, that is a while. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if my grandma has a hand-crank phone. Because my grandma has a bunch of old phones that yeah. she like, collects. She also connects, collects little like pince-nez and stuff like that, little mm-hmm. glasses. And, but, and the brooches. And the brooches. And, yep. yep, yep, yep. Um, but yeah, she has a bunch of old phones, and I don't think she has a crank phone. Yeah, uh, we, my parents used to have one of the like circular dial yep. ones, um, like in case of emergencies, but that's as old-fashioned as we got. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Well, anyways, thank you all for listening. As always, I've been your halfwit. And I'm your historian. And we hope you listen next time. Bye.